1: Well, welcome back, Thursday, October twenty sixth, twenty twenty three. I am Seth Liebson. I have got Mr. Bill to my west. I've got David Dahl to my north. He is my producer, and I've got Miss Terry Septent of David for the rest of you, whatever place on the compass you find yourself. Six zero two five zero eight zero nine six zero six zero two fifty eighty nine sixty. We've been talking a lot about goings on on our college campuses. Listener Lee sent me late last night an email. Conservative messaging for current times. See William F. Buckley's 1950 class day oration at Yale. Similar domestic and foreign issues. Common sense conservative message that rings true today. Then he did something kind of funny. He didn't attach it. (laughs) He didn't link to it. Uh, So I found it. Um. You be the judge. I found it fascinating. So this was about 73 years ago, um, this past summer, uh, William Buckley's Yale Commencement speech a year ago, he writes or he spoke. The orator for the class of 1949 stood here and told his classmates that the troubles of the United States in particular and of Western democracy in general were attributable to the negativism of our front against communism. He was not alone, voice jarring smug opinion in the mid 20th century America. Rather, he is part of the swelling forefront of men and women who are raising a hue and a cry for what they loosely call positivism, by which they mean bold new measures, audacious steps forward, a reorientation towards those great new horizons and that brave new world. It is natural at this point to realize that although we must be very careful how we put it we are as yale men privileged members of our society and to us falls the responsibility of leadership in this great new positivist movement for we had had a great education and our caps and gowns weigh heavy upon us as we face our responsibilities to mankind all of us here have been exposed to four years education one of the most enlightened and advanced liberal arts colleges in the world here we can absorb the Last word in most fields of academic endeavor, here we find the headquarters of a magazine devoted exclusively to metaphysics, and another devoted entirely to an analysis of French existentialism. And here, for better or worse, we have been jolted forcefully away from any preconceived judgments we may have had when we came. Here we can find men who will tell us that Jesus Christ was the greatest fraud that history has known. Here we can find men who will tell us that morality is an anachronistic conception rendered obsolete by the advances of human thoughts. From neo-Benthamites at Yale, we can learn that laws are a sociological institution to be wielded to facilitate the sacrosanct will of the enlightened minority. Communism is a real force to cope with only because of the deficiencies of democracy. Our fathers who worked to send us to Yale, their fathers and their fathers who made Yale in the United States, were hard-working men, shrewd men, and performed a certain economic service. But they were dreadfully irresponsible in view of today's enlightenment. And so it goes. Two and two make three. The shortest distance between two points is a crooked line. Good is bad and bad is good, and from this morass we are to extract a workable, enlightened synthesis to govern our thoughts and our actions, for today we are educated men. Nothing, it is true, is healthier than honest scrutiny and maybe even a little debunking thrown in. When a dean tells us that our task is to go out and ennoble mankind, we nod our heads and wonder whether the opening in the putty knife factory or in the ball-bearing works might just pay more. When we are told that Lincoln was totally unconcerned with politics, we might ponder the occasion in 1863 when he could not focus his attention on the questions of a distinguished visitor because he was terribly worried over what Republican to appoint postmaster of Chicago. In 1913, Charles Beard wrote his economic interpretation of the Constitution. It was banned in seven state universities and brought almost nationwide ostracism for the author. Today, a study of this analysis is a prerequisite to a doctoral degree in American history. Certainly, civilization cannot advance without freedom of inquiry. The fact is self evident. What seems equally self evident is that in the process of history certain immutable truths have been revealed and discovered and that their value is not subject to the limitations of time and space. The probing, the relentless debunking has engendered a skepticism that threatens to pervade, an atrophy all our values. In apologizing for our beliefs and our traditions, we have bent over backwards so far that we have lost our balance, and we see a topsy-turvy world and we say topsy-turvy things, such as the way to beat communism is by making our democracy better. What a curious self-examination. Beat the union of Soviet socialist republics by making America socialistic. Beat atheism by denying God. Uphold individual freedom by denying natural rights. We neglect to say to the communist, In the name of heaven, look at what we now have. Your standards don't interest us. As Emerson threatened to say to the obstreperous government tax collector, If you pursue, I will slit your throat, sir. The credo of the so called positivists is characterized by the advocacy of change. Republican On the other hand, is negativism because conservatives believe that America has grown and has proffered, has put muscle on her bones by rewarding initiative and industry, by conceding to her citizens not only the right and responsibilities of self-government, but also the right and responsibilities of self-care, of individually earned security. The role of the so-called conservative is a difficult one. A starry-eyed young man, nevertheless aggressive in his wisdom, flaunting the badge of custodian of the common man, approaches our neat, sturdy white house and tells us we must destroy it, rebuild it of crystallized cold cream, and paint it purple. But we like it the way it is, we retort, but only feebly. Rip her down. This is a changing world, we are told. In our effort to achieve perspective all the more difficult by virtue of our having gone is the effort to achieve perspective all the more difficult by virtue of our having gone to Yale in many respects, it is because the university does not actively aid us in forming an enlightened synthesis that job is for us to perform to reject those notions that do not square with the enlightenment that should be ours as moral educated men beneficiaries of a century's historical experience. Yale has given us much. Not least is an awesome responsibility to withstand her barrage, to emerge from her halls with both feet on the ground, with a sane head and a reinforced set of values. If our landing is accomplished, we are stronger men for the fight. Keenly aware then of the vast deficiencies in American life today, the suffering, the injustice, the want, We must nevertheless spend our greatest efforts, it seems to me, in preserving the framework that supports the vaster bounties that make our country an oasis of freedom and prosperity. Our concern for deficiencies in America must not cause us to indict the principles that have allowed our country its faults, notwithstanding, to tower over the nations of the world as a citadel of freedom and wealth. With what severity and strength we can muster, we must punch the gas bag of cynicism and skepticism and thank providence for what we have and must retain. Our distillation of the ideas, concepts, and theories expounded at Yale must serve to enhance our devolution to the good in what we have, to reinforce our allegiance to our principles, to convince us that our outlook is positive, for that retention is the best for features of our way of life in the most enlightened and noble of goals. Insofar as the phrase for God, for country, and for Yale is meaningful, we need not be embarrassed to mean for God as we know him, for country as we know it, and for Yale as we have known her. That was 73 years ago at the best university, or at least the top-rated university in the country, college in the country. And yet, even then, William Buckley was pointing out, what we learn here in college, at the best, is that two and two make three, and the shortest distance between two points is a crooked line, and good is bad and bad is good, and we're supposed to take all this and extract a workable, enlightened synthesis to govern our thoughts and actions." because this is what we call education in America. Seventy-three years ago today, he was pointing that out. So when listener Lee said, you might want to revisit it after all I was speaking about the colleges and universities yesterday, he was quite right in reminding me of it. Curious as to know if he's around, if he might call in and tell me what made him think of that obscure speech of Mr. Buckley's. But yes, that is the problem this is what passes for higher education today, and it's a lower view of the human. I show you the news today. I'm Seth Leibson, 602 We'll be right back. Wow. That's a powerful lyrics. I wonder how the old folks are tonight. Ann's parents, I think, is who he's talking about. and his ex-girlfriend, as he's driving down the carefree, carefree driveway. Care, sorry, Carefree, carefree Highway. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. That's the prequel. <laughs> yeah, Carefree <laughs> Highway. Um, thank you for that. Uh, I um, We used to think we would get enlightenment through our education systems, that we would get education through our education systems, that we would maintain our humanity, our civility, our humanness, our humaneness from our education systems. We used to have degrees in humane letters, doctorate in humane letters. And it's quite clear that's quite in the rearview mirror. William Buckley was pointing it out 73 years ago. It's gotten worse. I had a professor of political philosophy. He's a student of Leo Strauss. His name was Harry Newman. And he did more of the philosophy than the politics part. And um, he used to give these lectures on the importance of politics, how there is nothing more important in society than politics, for it is how we structure our lives and the society we want to live in, which is why it's all the more dangerous when our politics becomes so broken, because we're not going to get it from our education system. Any restoration we may seek, not with this crowd, not with this crowd which hates the decent it's not just hating Jews, it hates the decent. And um, professors marching with students to cabin, falsely imprison other students in a library where the librarian says they can escape through a tunnel. We thought tunnels were a thing of the border and a thing of Gaza. They're a thing of Cooper Union, evidently. So it makes the politics really all the more important. If we're going to save society, our politics must be so much more the better and so much more the stronger, which is why I have such high hopes for Mike Johnson, who yesterday did a very good job in his talk upon becoming Speaker of the House. uh, Our mutual friend Steve, much spoken about yesterday, alerted me to a part of his talk he thought I should share with the audience, Mike Johnson's, I'm delighted to do so now.
2: In his farewell address, thank you. In his farewell address, President uh, Reagan uh, explained the secret of his rapport with people, and and I like to paraphrase his explanation all the time. He said, "You know, they call me the great communicator, but I really wasn't that." He said, "I was just communicating great things, and they're the same great things that they've guided our nation since its founding." What are those great things? I call them the seven core principles of American conservatism, but let me concede to you all, I think it's really quintessentially the core principles of our nation. I boil them down to individual freedom, limited government, the rule of law, peace through strength, fiscal responsibility, free markets, and human dignity. Those those are the foundations that made us the extraordinary nation that we are. And you and I today are the stewards of those principles. The things that have made us the freest most powerful most successful nation in the history of the world the things that have made us truly exceptional in this time of great crisis it is our duty to work together as previous generations of great leaders have to face these great challenges and solve these great problems i will conclude with this the job of the speaker of the house is to serve the whole body and i will but i've made a commitment to my colleagues here that this speaker's office is going to be known for decentralizing the power here.
1: What's interesting when he says that, only one side of the House claps, decentralizing power. It's interesting, only one side of the House got up to clap to that. The Democrats want to centralize power. It is not a criticism of them, it is a description that they welcome. They could not stand up to clap for that line.
2: My office is going to be known for members being more involved and having more influence in our processes and all the major decisions that are made here for predictable processes and regular order. We owe that to the people. That's right.
1: One side of the house clapped.
2: And I want to make this commitment to you, to my colleagues here and on the other side of the aisle as well. My office is going to be known for trust and transparency and accountability, for good stewardship of the people's treasure for the honesty and integrity that is incumbent upon us, all of us, here in the People's House. Our system of government is not a perfect system. It's got a lot of challenges, but it is still the best one in the world, and we have an opportunity to preserve it. Last thing I'm gonna say is a message to the rest of the world. They have been watching this drama play out for a few weeks. We've learned a lot of lessons, but you know what? Through adversity, it makes you stronger. And Yeah. And, and we want our allies around the world to know that this body of lawmakers is reporting again to our duty stations. Let the enemies of freedom around the world hear us loud and clear. The People's House is back in business.
1: Just like uh, you might expect the President of the United States to say, that strong, that clear. Boy, you think about that contrast. You think about that contrast of the message of America to the world that he wants conveyed. You cannot get that from the President of the United States. He is incapable of doing it. He's incapable of mustering it, whether he believes it or not. You think it matters? I think it matters. I think it matters that the world knows That there are people here with that kind of clarity and that kind of voice and that kind of belief about this country still. I think it matters a lot. Anyway, I'm glad my friend, uh, our mutual friend uh, Steve, reminded us to uh, look at that. He took your assignment, by the way, yesterday, Mr. Dahl, very seriously, trudging through your... 20 pages of gobbledygook because you guys have to be very careful. You have to be very careful when you do these things. When you send something to someone like Steve who's a serious person or he sends something to you as a serious person. Neither of you understand you will both take it seriously. So when he sent you <laughs> when he sent me sixty five yes, some pages. Yeah, that's of Bob exactly Dillon, what I was thinking. I when he sent you sixty five songs of Bob Dylan's that you should listen and you printed out the lyrics to all of them, he refused <laughs> to understand that you take serious you take serious people seriously. And when you sent him this twenty page piece of Gobbledygook about what was it? Nonlinear, non nonsensical inevitability of the circle psychosis. He again. read it, and it put him to sleep. You can't do this to people. You know what? You have to think carefully about what you're going to brew it hey. around and send around and at least say. He
3: takes me seriously.
1: I take you seriously <laughs> enough to know when not to take you seriously.
3: Yes. The, Not the everyone was has more those filters. Yes.
1: Understand, um, two of you, everyone.
3: And actually, it, as, as I read deeper into it, it began to portray a contrasting viewpoint as well. So if anything, it towed the line between both of us.
1: It's, it's like 80 minutes of both of your lives you'll never get back, and I'm just glad I had no part of it. Are global leaders developing solutions that promote freedom and quality of life, or are they creating problems and forcing solutions that only benefit the elite? Midas Gold Group believes it's the latter. From draconian COVID restrictions, the decimation of small businesses, and changed election laws, Midas believes your finances will be next under the guise... Of protecting you, you'll get monetary expansion, national debt, and reduced purchasing power, and their central bank digital currency will virtually eliminate your savings and purchasing privacy. The answer is to convert a portion of your savings or IRA to physical gold and silver. Precious metals are a private currency, they are used and have been used to store wealth throughout history. Thousands of you have trusted the veterans at Midas Gold Group, just like Seb Gorka and myself, because they've been fighting and are fighting for your financial freedom and privacy. Call the Midas Gold Group today at 480-360-3000. That's 480-360-3000. Or visit them online at MidasGoldGroup.com. Young David, did you do your homework assignment?
3: Yes, I did. And? I read uh, Harrison Bergeron yes. by Kurt Vonnegut.
1: And what did you think of it?
3: I kind of thought it was a bit disgusting.
1: Well, yes, perhaps in the uh, in, in 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 sub yes, perhaps per, perhaps it is. It's a perfect though description of what happens when we live in a crisis industrial complex. We're not allowed to cogitate. We're not allowed to have peace. We're not allowed to think. We are to live in a constant frenzy, which, of course, from which the word frenetic comes from, which means unhealthy state of mind. And uh, it was written almost uh, as long ago as William Buckley's speech, more like 60 years ago. But you didn't find it at all particularly poignant to the time we live in and the kind of world we live in where the moment we begin to think seriously about something... Our thoughts have to be interrupted. We can't have an appreciation of calm or a moment's worth of thought and everyone has to be put on the same level of discompobulation. That didn't hit you as much well, as well I
3: think our thoughts are interrupted on a daily basis. That's we that. talked that's about right. it yesterday. Yes. We talked about the fact that forty one states are suing Instagram and Facebook right. for being addictive. That's I think right. our thoughts are addicted I mean I think our thoughts are interrupted by our addictions yeah. to our cell phones yes, and other but also such things. by the media,
1: and also by what we concern ourselves with is called that calls itself news, don't you think I think i mean take, yes think and about no, any serious I think young story. people
3: are woefully misinformed or uninformed yeah. is probably the correct terminology I'm looking for. I think that uh, young people today. Uh, just won't even dive into the news or politics or understanding of certain big, large, important topics out of a sense of uh, general comfort that you get from being ignorant, which I suppose, um, what was it, George and Hazel appealed Mm -hmm. to at the back end of the story.
1: Yeah. The minute they have a thought, the grand handicapper... Pushes a button and a signal scatters. I've got it
3: right here.
1: It's, uh... The grand handicapper, right?
3: Forget sad things. I always do, said Hazel. That's my girl, said George. And, uh, that's it. It's this, uh... It's this ignorance is bliss.
1: I don't know if the kids are misinformed or uninformed. I still think that professor at the Berkeley School of Music has it right. The problem with the young people is they don't know basic narratives of their histories or any narratives. Blazed on parts, searching the Internet for any factoids, which are false stories they believe fit their highly dehistoricized and decontextualized ideologies. The adult world totally misunderstands this and dismisses it, and does so at our collective peril. You look at the polling of these kids. you look at the your marches for genocide on our college campuses. that is what they are marching for. These are not Palestinian rights marches; these are genocidal marches who was uh Who was the person who posted this uh just earlier today? I think they have it exactly. Right. If um, you didn't care about the tens of thousands of Palestinians during the Civil War and you don't care about Palestinians in Jordan where their citizenship is being revoked and they face discrimination in every system there and you don't care about Palestinian refugees suffering... In Lebanon, and if you don't care about Palestinians on the border with Egypt who are begging for shelter and Egypt refuses to open the border, and if you don't even care when Palestinians are protesting and suffering under Hamas and the corruption of Palestinian authorities, you only seem to care when it relates to Israel. I have news for you. You're not pro Palestinian, you're anti Jew. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. 25 years ago, it's a great question, you know. It's the question really that um, Dana Loesch put out, which was, you know, when people talk about what they read in the 1930s in Europe and how people could go along with it or be ignorant of it or quiet about it, she said, just look at the college campuses today. This is how. One of the great intellects of our lifetime underestimated, was uh, former Supreme Court Justice, now deceased, Antonin Scalia. And 25 years ago, he was speaking about exactly that and how in a sophisticated society, the worst of human crimes can take place. Is there anything more sophisticated than our colleges and universities today? I give you Justice Antonin Scalia
4: and diabolical cruelty it would not be believed but it did happen the one message I want to convey today is that you will have missed the most frightening aspect of it all if you do not appreciate ...that it happened in one of the most educated, most progressive, most cultured countries in the world. The Germany of the late 1920s and early 1930s was a world leader in most fields of art, science, and intellect. Berlin was a center of theater. With the assistance of the famous producer Max Reinhardt, playwrights and composers of the caliber of Bertolt Brecht and Kurt Weill flourished. Berlin had three opera houses and Germany as a whole no less than 80. Every middle-sized city had its own orchestra. German poets and writers included Hermann Hesse, Stefan George, Leonhard Frank, Franz Kafka, and Thomas Mann, who won the Nobel Prize for literature. In 1929. In architecture, Germany was the cutting edge with Gropius and the Bauhaus School. Musical composers, it, boast, it boasted painters like Paul Klee and Oskar Schlemmer. Musical composers like Anton Webern, Alban Berg, Arnold Schoenberg, Paul Hindemith. Conductors like Otto Klemperer. Bruno Walter, Erich Kleiber, and Wilhelm Fortwengler. And in science, of course, the Germans were preeminent. To quote a recent article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, in 1933, when the National Socialist Party came to power in Germany, the biomedical enterprise in that country was among the most sophisticated in the world. German contributions to biochemistry, physiology, medicine, surgery, and public health, as well as to clinical training, had shaped to an important degree the academic and practice patterns of the time. And clinical training and research experience in the great German clinics and laboratories had been widely sought for decades by physicians and basic scientists from around the world. To fully grasp the horror of the Holocaust, you must imagine, for it probably happened, that the commandant of Auschwitz or Dachau, when he had finished his day's work, retired to his apartment to eat a meal that was in the finest good taste And then to listen, perhaps, to some tender and poignant leader of Franz Schubert. This aspect of the matter is perhaps so prominent in my mind because I am undergoing currently the task of selecting a college for the youngest of my children. Or perhaps more accurately, trying to help her select it. How much stock we place in education, intellect, cultural refinement, and how much of our substance we are prepared to expend to give our children the very best opportunity to acquire education, intellect, cultural refinement. Yet those qualities are only of secondary importance. To our children and to the society that their generation will create. I am reminded of words written by John Henry Newman long before the Holocaust could even be imagined. He wrote, Knowledge is one thing, virtue is another. Good sense is not conscience, refinement is not humility. Liberal education makes the gentleman. It is well to be a gentleman. It is well to have a cultivated intellect, a delicate taste, a candid, equitable, dispassionate mind, a noble and courteous bearing in the conduct of life. These are the connatural qualities of a large knowledge. They are the objects of a university. But... They are no guarantee for sanctity or even for conscientiousness. They may attach to the man of the world, to the profligate, to the heartless. Yes, to the heartless. It is the purpose of these annual Holocaust remembrances, as it is the purpose of the nearby Holocaust Museum not only to honor the memory of the six million Jews and three or four million other poor souls caught up in this 20th century terror, but also by keeping the memory of their tragedy painfully alive to prevent its happening again. The latter can be achieved only by acknowledging and passing on to our children the existence of absolute, uncompromisable standards of human conduct. Mankind has traditionally derived such standards from religion. And the the West has derived them from and through the Jews. Those absolute and uncompromisable standards of human conduct will not endure without an effort to make them endure. And it is to that enterprise that we rededicate ourselves today. Those standards are in the Decalogue, and they are in the question put and answered by Micah, what doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God.
1: Welcome back to the Seth Lipsen Show. Doug is in Maricopa. Hello, Doug. How
0: are you, sir? How you doing, brother Seth? Hanging in there. How you doing? I'm hanging in there, too. And talk about a weighty subject. But, um, gosh, that last thing you played. Oh, my God. You just raised the hair on, uh, on your arms. It's just I know. Powerful. I know. I know. Scalia. Scalia. Oh, oh, geez. Well, listen, I. so I want to take some of the things you've been talking about and do it in sort of like applied logic, you know. And some of this is, is hard because in, in America today we're all very weak and we're all very defensive. So it's sort of like in America today someone says, I like dogs, and then all the cat owners call up and are whining and they're hurt. You know, and if you say you like cats and if you make jokes that uh, dogs are just big saliva glands, then all the dog owners are crying and whimpering. It's like, good God, get over this. You know, I'm a I'm a dog person through and through, but I have friends that love cats and God love them. And they tease me owning a dog. So that's a long way to say some of this people are going to get offended with. um, But it's not to demean anybody. It's to assess a pattern. And I look at history and say there's all kinds of progressive failures that will continue to be progressive failures unless we assess the pattern of activity and thought. If we do not do that, nothing will change. And I don't care if it's you go back to the Revolutionary War where we got pounded our way back through the the Delawares and uh, until – Baron von Steuben, we had to change our military tactics before the results of the war began to change. The Civil War was the same way. We got pounded and defeated for, you know, quite a while until we had Grant and Sherman began to change their attitude and change the techniques. And then the, only then could you expect to change the result. World War I the same way. It was like defeat because we're in stagnant death, just killing each other with no result until they began to do combined arms warfare and be able to break through the lines. Until you change your thought pattern, you can't change the result. So that brings me back to today. And when we look at... Because I viewed myself as a...
1: We got got our top of the news here thing, Doug, and I've got uh, Brian Kennedy coming up. Uh, So I wonder if you will do me the favor of uh, calling me back tomorrow with the big question (laughs) after that lead-in. We'll reprise it, uh, of course, if you like, but call me tomorrow and we'll tackle it. It sounds to me like you were building towards something big, but we have the tyranny of the clock that we cannot breach. So do that for me tomorrow. Would you, Doug, do me that favor? Thank you. It sounds to me like you were on something big, but uh, I do have a scheduled guest coming up, and I do have the scheduled news break. We'll be right back.